Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining us for this session. Uh, what we're going to do together as we are here today is um, talk about the second chapter of a book that's being written on Christian leadership. And the name of the book is actually Leaders Following. We don't often think of a leader who's someone who's following. We think of a leader who's someone who's leading. But as Christians, in Christian leadership, we actually are followers. We're followers of Jesus. And we lead in his pattern and learn from him how to lead. Actually, the first chapter of this book is exactly on that. Was Jesus a leader? Because in our contemporary Christian culture, we don't often think about Jesus as actually a leader. But Jesus was indeed a leader. That's chapter one. And so today we come to chapter two, which is about the reality that Jesus knew. We won't really understand Jesus' teaching and how he led until we understand the reality that was real to him. And his reality, of course, was the kingdom of God. So that's the subject of our time together this morning. I wonder if we could begin by praying together. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the love of God and the example of Jesus. We want to learn from that example. And we come to you now to entrust this time to you. Come, Holy Spirit, lead us, empower us. Use this time for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, the reality that Jesus knew. Let me give you um, a Bible verse to get us started from Matthew 12. You know, and Jesus was casting out demons and there were those who opposed him, who were challenging him about that. And Jesus said to them, If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In the Gospels, we see many ways in which Jesus seemed to be very normal, just like anybody else. Jesus was tired. He was hungry. He wept over the death of a loved one. He walked many miles. He ate normal food. He had friends. He had enemies. But there were other areas in which Jesus seemed different, very different in his understanding of what is truly real and how human life really works. What is real? And how does human life really work? Jesus seemed to be in touch with a reality beyond the material world. He healed people. He cast out demons. He calmed a raging sea. He even raised the dead. He said things that seemed strange to us, very different from the usual ways human beings think about life. He said, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him other, the other cheek also. Where did he get that? 
He said, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless those that curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you. Is that reality? Is that how human life works? Is that how we normally think? People today might ask, what world is he living in? Well, actually, as it turns out, that's exactly the right question. What world was Jesus really living in? Jesus knew of the existence and makeup of a non-material, intangible, unseen world. This is the reality in which God lives, the sphere in which he rules. This unseen world was actually Jesus' reality. It was reality to him. It was from this world that he was speaking. It was from this world that he was living. It was from this world that he was acting. Scripture describes two realities. First, there is a created material world. It had a beginning and it will end. Genesis 1. In the beginning, there was God. And he spoke and he created the world the material, tangible, visible, touchable world, the material world. It had a beginning and it will end. Now scripture informs us from Genesis to Revelation about another world, an uncreated non-material world. It has always existed and it will never end. God is spirit. What does it mean? One thing it means, he dwells in non-material, unseen reality. He created the material world, is everywhere present in the material world, but he is separate from it. So the whole description that scripture gives us, God is holy. What does it mean? It means God is separate. And God is separate, of course, from sin, but God is also separate from his creation. There is God. There is his creation. God is separate from his creation. Now there is one awesome, overwhelmingly powerful example where that's not true. And we don't want to get on a tangent about this, but it's, it's important to mention. When the Holy Spirit impregnated the Virgin Mary. God became a part of his creation. He was in the world and the world was created by him and the world knew him not. So the indescribably powerful example of the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity was an experience where God became part of his creation in order to redeem it. That being the case, we still have this reality. There is God and the material world. 
Now, although God is separate from the material world, God is very active in the material world. He's active here. It isn't as though he's not here. He rules here. Jesus said, my father is working until now, and I am working. God's activity in the created world is largely indiscernible to our senses. But his activities here have tangible effects that are life-changing. Jesus knew this. So I want to tell you a story about that now. What are we saying? God is unseen and intangible, separate from the material world, but he's in the material world. He permeates the material world. He's active in the material world. He's doing things in the material world. And things that God does from the immaterial have tangible effects among us that are life-transforming. And Jesus knew this. Now, um, some of you know that my wife Hannah is Jewish. She is a German Jew, born in 1932 in Germany, uh, just before Hitler and the Nazis came to power. And she grew up as a child, as a Jewish child in Germany, under the growing persecution of the Nazis against the Jews. Um, 20 years ago, God began to lead her back to her home region of Germany, the Eiffel, in a ministry of forgiveness and reconciliation. We started going back there, and one of the things we did was we prayed in every single place in her hometown of Gmünd and in the region that had painful memories for Hannah. And the more we prayed, the more we found God changing our prayers to prayers of healing. God, come into this situation. You know the evil that has taken place here. Come with your healing. Come with your redemption. Come with your forgiveness. Come with your kingdom. May the kingdom come in Gmund and in the Eiffel. Well, we, we did that for years, and there wasn't much fruit. In fact, there were years when it was pretty discouraging. Then, one day, it just so happened that we had a conversation with a German journalist. And he said, look, we have Kristallnacht coming up. That's the night of broken glass, November 9th and 10th. Um, 1938, when all over Germany, Jewish synagogues were burned, rocks were thrown through, the windows of Jewish homes and Jewish businesses. Terrible thing. And this German journalist said, look, I would like us to do something locally to bring that into the light, Hannah, around your life story. Would you be open to do that? So the journalists created a meeting. It involved the mayor, it involved some church leaders, it involved the journalists, and it involved Hannah and I. So here we are sitting in this hotel having dinner together with this, with this group of people. And Hannah would describe that meeting 
as one of the worst meetings she's ever been in. It was very painful. You don't need me to go into all the details. But when we came out of the meeting, it was snowing, it was in the winter, and the mayor had picked us up in his car and brought us to the meeting and then put us in his car to take us home. And the mayor himself said, if I had not withdrawn from the church before tonight, I would do it now. I mean, he was livid over what was said and done in that meeting. It was an awful meeting. At the end of the meeting, one person came to us, one man. His name was George, Georg in German. He was quiet. He hadn't said anything during the meeting. And he came up to us and he said, do you think we could have a cup of coffee together sometime? So we said, sure. Subsequent to that, we had coffee with him. One thing led to another. And the day came when Georg, who turns out is a Catholic theologian and has a lot of influence in the region, the day came when there was a service of memory on Kristallnacht in another year, on Kristallnacht, around Hannah's life that Georg organized. And one of the things he did in preparation, he said to us, look, I need a picture of you because, Hannah, because we need a poster to do this. And so all up and down one month earlier, all up and down the Dleibonestrasse, the main street in Gamun where Hannah grew up, from which she and her family were driven after Kristallnacht, all up and down that street was a poster with a picture of Hannah and her mother in all the German shops. And Hannah spoke that night in a place that was a stone's throw from her family home, and she ended that talk by saying, I am still a Jew. I am a Jew that follows Jesus as my Messiah. And the next day that we walked through the uh, drive on Estraza, the atmosphere had changed. Something had broken. The truth had been told. Germans had owned the truth. Germans had brought the truth into the light and blessing was beginning to flow. Now what connection does that story have with the reality Jesus knew? That came from the unseen kingdom. That was the activity of the Father. The fact that that meeting took place that was so often was awful was actually the activity of the Father. The fact that we met Georg was actually the activity of the Father. God was hearing the prayers that had been prayed. He was working. He was working in ways that we didn't understand. He was working in ways that are invisible, but more and more those ways became visible. They became real. They became part of the material world. And I want to submit that story to you as an example of what we're talking about. The awesome reality of God's activity in the seen material world. The kingdom of God was Jesus' message. It integrated and undergirded all he did and taught. His first public act 
was the announcement of the availability of the kingdom through him. Jesus started his whole public ministry by saying, repent, for the kingdom of God has come. Now, it isn't as though the kingdom of God hadn't been here. There was new availability. The kingdom had come because the king had come. Kingdom is about ruling. A kingdom is the realm in which a king rules. The kingdom of God is about God ruling. That's what it's about. The context in which God reigns. Now you say, God rules everywhere. That's certainly true. God rules everywhere. But here comes a really, really important point about God's ruling, about the kingdom, about the reality that Jesus knew. God as king and ruler allows his rule to be opposed. He tolerates opposition. And God's rule is opposed. It's opposed by Satan and it's opposed by man. And God allows that for now. There will come a day when he will withdraw that permission. For now, God allows opposition. And to understand why is foundational to Christian leadership. So you might say, hey, George, you're talking to us about, you know, the kingdom of God and all that's good. But I thought there's a book on leadership. In order to understand Christian leadership, we must be able to understand why God allows opposition to his rule. Understanding why God allows opposition to his rule is also crucial to understanding the nature of his kingdom. What kind of ruler is God? God is king. What kind of king is he? God is a leader. If you're a king, you're a leader. Well, what kind of leader is God? Jesus is a leader. What kind of a leader actually is he? God is creator. He has all power. He can force his will upon whomever he wishes. You know, God's big. And if he wants to force his will on you or me or anybody else, he can do that. You know, it, it doesn't require a lot of energy for him to do that. But to do so will not accomplish his purposes. How so? John the Beloved tells us God is love. God's purpose in ruling. What is God's purpose in ruling? He's the king. King of kings and Lord of lords is Jesus. What's his purpose? What does he want to accomplish through being king of kings and Lord of lords? God's intent to generate an ever-expanding human environment of indescribably beautiful love. I want to say it again. God's intent is to generate an ever-expanding human environment of indescribably precious love. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of love. It's not a kingdom of power. 
See, we human beings want the power. We want it to be power. We want power. We want God on our side to give us power. But the kingdom of God is not essentially a kingdom of power. Not now. One day it will be, but not now. What kind of a kingdom is it? It's a kingdom of love. Genuine love can only be freely given. You can't force love. You can't demand love. You can't create love by law. Let's pass a law that everybody must love. It doesn't work that way. Genuine love must be freely given. Power cannot force it. Law cannot demand it. Power, political power, military power, social power, is antithetical to the kingdom Jesus taught. Friends, the context in which we live today, think about it. Jesus never sought power. He never sought political power. That wasn't where it was. He never sought social power. That's not where it is. 20 centuries of Christian history show us power cannot generate righteousness. Think of the examples of Christian history. You know, we don't have time, of course, to go a sweeping tour of Christian history. Think of the Crusades. Crusaders marching off to conquer the Holy Land with crosses on their shields. What was the end result? Think of the Inquisition when people were forced to become Christians. Think of the Thirty Years' War where Protestants and Catholics were killing each other in the name of religion, in the name of truth, in the name of Jesus, armies slaughtering one another. Think of World War I. All of the countries involved in World War I except Turkey were Christian countries and they all thought God was on their side and they all communicated to their uh, indigenous, their local people that God was with them. Power. Politics today. God allows rebellion to give space for painful results of wrong choices to bear their bitter fruit. Why does God allow rebellion? Because he has to get through to us the consequences of sin. And rebellion will bring pain. Rebellion is sin. It will bring pain. And the pain, God allows pain, in order to offer us the opportunity to repent. To say, boy, I was my own boss. I rebelled against God's reign. I've done my own thing. This is the bitter, bitter fruit. I think I better change my ways and repent. This, in turn, forms a basis for the growth of Christ-like character. Christ-like character cannot grow without pain. Think about it. There is rebellion on our part. There is sin. There is the painful consequences of sin, which God allows to give us the opportunity to repent. 
Repentance opens the door to the formation of Christ-like character within. Human pain is essential for breaking the choices which enslave us, our own sin. God's intended end result is Christ-like people. So what is God doing? He has all power. He's the king. Jesus is the king of kings. What is he doing? What does he want? He wants Christ-like people. That's what he wants. He wants Christ-like people. He's working to form, to generate, to cultivate, to grow Christ-like people. That's what God is doing. Redeemed and healed from all effects of sin. He gives us grace to learn, his son to teach, his spirit to empower. Now, I want to tell you another story. Got to get the right balance here between um, ideas and stories. Back in the 70s, I was the director of two ocean-going ships. That's a whole other story that we won't talk about today. But that led us to want to go to China when the um, doors of China were beginning to open. And we sent one of our, we had lineup people who went ahead of the ship to arrange the program. And we sent our best lineup man to China to see if we could get permission to bring the ship Logos into China, into Shanghai. And when he was in China, he met Wang Mingdao. Wang Mingdao was a leading pastor in China during the communist years. And he was taken prisoner. And he was persecuted in prison. And in response to the persecution, he denied the faith. So he was released from prison. Upon his release, time with the Lord led him to go back to the authority and say, I want to withdraw my denial. And they put him back into prison for 21 years. He was released from prison, 80 years of age. He was 90% deaf. And our line man got to meet him and had his recorder and recorded Wang Mingdao. And our lineup man asked him, brother, did they persecute you in the prison? Give him a chance to tell about all the awful things they did to him. And Wang Mingdao said, it's all under the blood of Christ. And then he said, I know a song in English. Would you like me to sing to you a song in English? And our brother said, yes. And his wife said, you're going to stop that singing. He's singing all the time. They're going to put him back into prison if he doesn't stop singing. She couldn't keep him from singing. 80 years old, 90% deaf, over 20 years in prison. She couldn't stop him from singing. And so Wang Mingdao sang, and I heard it on the tape. This was his English song. All the way, my Savior leads me. 
How can I ask besides? Can I doubt his tender mercy, who through life has been my guide? Wang Ming Dao was in hiddenness. Over 20 years in hiddenness in a, in a communist prison. What was going on there? He was growing to be like Jesus. He's a manifestation of the kingdom. Who knows all that God did through his life? Who knows? It's too sacred for us to know. It's written in the annals of heaven. It's something that Jesus reviews to deepen his joy. That God is creating people like Wang Mingdao and they are allowing themselves to be created and formed in the likeness of Christ. Leadership becomes Christian as we learn to live under God's rule in our own lives and then become channels for inviting others to join us. Christ leads, we follow. Christian leadership develops as I allow Jesus to lead me in his way that his likeness might be formed in me and as his likeness is formed in me, I am instructed how to teach others to allow him to form his likeness in them. Those who believe in the material world is the only reality. A lot of those people around, right? Easily dismiss God's unseen kingdom as being unreal. People say we must live in the real world. Ever hear that? And we've got to live in the real world. God's kingdom is the real world. It is the real world, actually. There's widespread belief today, somehow, that science has proven that non-material reality does not exist. This is simply not true. Now, hear me. I'm so incredibly thankful for science. I have an artificial heart valve that I've had for 25 years that I owe my whole life to science. I am so thankful for science. But science deals with the material world, where we can go in and do experiments and prove this and prove that and prove the other thing. There are areas where science cannot speak. It's not a um, lacking of science. It's these don't belong in the area of science. So the whole thing of what we're talking about today um, is in the uh, realm of theology or the realm of philosophy. Science explores the material world. It cannot speak to whether or not immaterial reality exists. That issue belongs to the area of philosophy and theology. As Christians, our authority for relying upon non-material reality, God and his kingdom, comes from Jesus and virtually every page of scripture. We'll never understand the scripture unless we understand that there is a whole sphere of unseen non-material reality. We access God's kingdom. Now I want to share with you this is I don't want to get on again, I don't want to get on a tangent here. But there, there are four processes or four steps to the process of accessing God's kingdom. The first thing is God speaks. That's the first thing. And God speaks through the scripture. 
but he also can speak any way he wants to. He can speak through events. He can speak directly to the heart. But it starts with the word of God. God speaks. The second step, we choose to act upon the word by faith. We choose. So faith, to begin with, is a choice that we make. And that's why early faith is rickety. And that's okay. You know, the man said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. That's a beautiful prayer. It's a realistic prayer. Many, many times, particularly at the beginning of faith, we're not sure. Is this true? Is this not true? Should I believe? Should I not believe? That's okay. We get to the point where we choose to believe. So that's the second step. The third step is God responds. God responds to that weak, feeble, rickety, imperfect step of faith. And the fourth step is we come to know. And so we get to the point where it's no longer, you know, Jesus said to Thomas, because you have seen, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And I ask myself, I haven't seen. I haven't seen with my eyes. But I know. I know. And so we come to the point where we know. We have experienced God. And we know we have experienced God. And if somebody says, well, prove it. First of all, you can't prove it. And secondly, you don't want to prove it. You don't need to prove it. You know. You know. There are certain things you know. That's how faith works. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, said Jesus. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. That's awesome. Jesus said to them, you know, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. You don't see it, you can't touch it, you can't smell it, but it's here. God's reign, where what happens is what God wants to happen, grows by a bottom-up dynamic. Its initial stages, in its initial stages, it takes root in hearts of individual disciples. So follow, follow this sequence now. The initial stages of the growth of the kingdom takes place in the heart unseen of individual disciples. These ones, as they are gradually transformed into Christ-likeness by the working of God's grace, begin to affect others. The primary methodology is love. The methodology of the kingdom is love. Christian leaders, there are certain methods in ministry that are valid and it's good for us to know. 
I'm not saying that methods are wrong or that we should be sloppy in methods. But don't get methods before love. The methodology of the kingdom is love. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Hence, the kingdom tends to initially spread in hiddenness, out of sight. That's the subject of the next chapter, chapter 3, hiddenness. As its perimeters are extended, manifestations break increasingly into the visible world. Now, I can't think, there, there are tons of stories about what we're saying here. I can't think of a better one than the spread of the gospel in the Roman Empire. So here's Jesus, born into the Roman Empire, crucified by the political power. It was the political power that ultimately nailed him on the cross. He did not live in a political system that was friendly to his message, quite the opposite. And then after him were his followers, who were also persecuted. Paul, put into prison. According to tradition, both Paul and Peter died in Rome. Throughout the Christian centuries, up the first three centuries, periodic persecution of the church. In the midst of that hostile political system. The church grew, the church grew, the church grew, the church grew. So much to the point where when we get to the fourth century, it becomes politically viable for the emperor to say Christianity is now the official religion of the empire. It's wonderful that he did it, but notice that it was politically viable to do it. Why? Because the kingdom of God in the manifestation of the church had permeated the culture. It was a bottom up. It wasn't getting on television or the television of the day. It wasn't converting the emperor. It wasn't a top up power thing. It was a bottom up revolution of love spreading. In fact, there are documents from that area where people were saying, behold these Christians, how they love one another. That's the character of the kingdom and the power of the kingdom. Jesus said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid three measures of flour until it was all leaven. So like leaven spreads through the dough, the kingdom spreads through society. Kingdom righteousness is righteousness of the heart. Jesus contrasted it with that of the scribes and the Pharisees, a righteous of external behaviors. So we haven't got time to talk a lot about this. But just know this, brothers and sisters. Two righteousnesses that Jesus compared, Matthew 5, many other places. 
There's the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. What kind of righteousness is that? It's the righteousness of external behavior. It's the righteousness that comes by imposing the law. That is not the righteousness of the kingdom. The righteousness of the kingdom is the righteousness of the heart. This is what Jesus is looking for, the righteousness of the heart. The righteousness that causes me to do that which is godly, not because somebody is forcing me, not because my parents are looking over my shoulder, not because my priest is looking over my shoulder, but because I want to. I'm loving my enemy because I want to. There's something within me that wants to do it. That something within me is Jesus. It's a righteousness of the heart. The ability to live under God's rule is something God does in us. By the power of his grace, we don't do it. God does it, but we must choose it. Let me say that again. The righteousness of the heart. I can't do that. Only God can do that in me. I don't do it. God does it. But I have to choose it. It doesn't happen by being passive. It doesn't happen by being religious. It doesn't happen by saying nice words. I have to choose it. And it's I allow Jesus to do it. He does it. One day all creation will acknowledge the king. So everything we said about God allowing opposition to his rule, you know, the day's going to come when that permission is going to be withdrawn. One day all creation will acknowledge the king. God's eternal kingdom will be fully manifested in visible, glorious, inescapable reality and beauty. Jesus used kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven interchangeably. The expression is found over 80 times in the Gospels. We will never understand Jesus. We want to understand Jesus? We will never understand him. We will never understand his life. We will never understand his teaching. We will never understand how he exercised and modeled leadership until we understand and live in harmony with his reality. When reading the Gospels, people often ask, what is Jesus talking about? What is he talking about? Love your enemies? What is he talking about? Well, He's talking about the kingdom. That's what he's talking about. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, teach us your ways. We don't know your ways, Lord. Left to ourselves. Teach us your reality. We don't know that reality. It's not real to us, but we want it to be real to us. Teach us your ways. We love you. We thank you. We entrust ourselves to you. Thank you, Father, for the gift of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen.